Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. So good to have you here this morning. We're here to worship the Lord. You know, I recently learned that the words in the Hebrew and the Greek in the Bible that are translated worship in the Bibles we're familiar with actually have the meaning to bow or to bend the knee. That's something that was very common in the ancient times when the Bible was written and to the readers. You know, they had kings and rulers and so forth, and bowing and bending the knee was a way to show reverence and honor and submission and respect. So in our culture, we're not really big on bowing and bending the knee, are we? So that term, I think it means a little something to us, but think for a minute about how you would show respect, honor, and submission to someone that was a, had power and authority and was uh, much greater than you. That is what we're here to do this morning. We're here to worship our Lord, who is worthy of our bowing and bending the knee to him. So on the, our service this morning, we are going to have a theme of focusing on the love of God. So that's, and another thing about worship is that it's a time to be grateful, to express gratitude. And I think that's this morning what we will probably focus on the most. So have gratitude for the love of God and the mercy that he has extended to each of you. So let's stand together and let's worship our Lord.
much. Please be seated. Good morning. And it's great to have you with us this morning as we come together, as we spend this time fellowshipping and worshiping our great God together this morning. If you're new or visiting, my name's Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church, and we are glad that you are here with us this morning to worship. If you are new or visiting, or there's anything you want to communicate with the church, there's a connect card in the seat in front of you. We'd invite you to fill that out with whatever information you want to share. You can drop those in the wooden boxes that are on the back wall on your way out this morning. Those boxes are also where where tithes and offerings can be placed. If you are, or if just a couple of announcements to bring to your attention, one is that on August 20th, a couple, couple months, a little over a month here, we're going to have a baptism following the service. So this morning's sermon is all about putting into practice our faith in Christ. And the last thing Paul says in, in the passage we'll read later this morning, is he says, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And one thing Paul did was, in response to his faith in Christ, he was baptized. And so if you've never been baptized, if you've followed Jesus, believe in Jesus, but never been baptized, we'd invite you to be a part of that. It's a step of obedience that we're called to in the Bible. So if you are interested in doing that, you can fill out the Connect card in front of you. You can write, just write, I'm interested in baptism, and drop it in the box. You can email me. You can talk to me after the service. However you want to get a hold of us, let us know. But we would love to have you be part of that and celebrate that step of obedience with you. The past week, we had VBS here at the church, and to tell us a little bit more about how that went, we're going to invite up Pastor Ian, our youth and family pastor. So VBS was a great week. We had 21 kids come to VBS, and our theme, as you can see, is wildlife, and we focused on animals and how God created them, um, and also how he created us, and it was an exciting week, awesome week. Uh, the stage setup was super cool. Could I have the Canada stand up? Because they did a great job. It was super cool. So, um, yeah, it was a great week of crafts and fun and lots of laughing, running, screaming, and worshiping and talking about Jesus. So it was, uh, yeah, it was just an awesome time. So if you see a kid that attended, which you can see most of them in the pictures, you should ask them what animals we talked about, and if they can tell you, that'd be cool. Some of them can, some of them can't, but you should check it out. We also had Eric Gustafson come and talk about different things. Eric did a great job um, talking about the forest and what animals live there and how God created them to live in the forest. So it was, it was a great VBS. Again, it's just a joy to be with you here this morning as we continue in this time of worship. And so as we continue in this time, would you join me in a time of prayer? Father, we come before you this morning to this place thankful for your love for us, the way your 
love has pursued us and come after us, even when we were running away, even when we were not inclined to reciprocate your love. You came after us. You love us deeply, deeply enough that you sent your Son to die for us when we were still your enemies. Father, my prayer that for each of us here that that love you have for us would never be something that we take for granted. We would never stop being amazed by your great love for us. Father, would our hearts be amazed and stand in awe of how deeply you love us. For all the ways you've worked in our life to bring us here to this place this morning. Whether we came in feeling great or feeling burdened and worn down and struggling with the trials of life, you are still with us, you still love us. Fathers, we worship this morning as we hear your word this morning. Pray that we would each feel deeply how much you love us. For those of us who are here who are feeling distant from you, who feel burdened, who feel worn out, would you give them a deep and abiding sense of your love for them this morning? Father, as we feel your love for us, would we pour out that love toward others? Would we love one another well? Would we love our community and our neighbors and even our enemies well in response to how deeply you love us? We thank you that you loved us enough to send your son to die for us when we had done nothing to deserve it. Thank you that you loved us enough to, through faith in that son, through faith in Christ, have our sins forgiven. We can look forward to eternity with you. Father, I pray for us as we marvel at your love for us as we marvel at the work of Christ on the cross on our behalf. That it would fuel us, that it would motivate us to go out into the world living lives of obedience, living lives that invite others into your love, into your grace through us in Christ. because of our deep sense of your love for us, would we go out and live the life you have called us to live? And would we worship you this morning? Not in a perfunctory way, but out of a deep, abiding, heartfelt love for you in return. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As many of you know, I have
been a big fan of the Bible, reading the Bible through the year plan by the Bible Project that Pastor Tim encouraged us to do. And for those of you that did that, are doing that plan and you started in January, you know we're in the book of Ezekiel right now, which spends a lot of time reviewing the reason or the history of Israel in sin and rebellion and all kinds of evil things for over 500 years before they were exiled. And as part of that, they showed a video that talked about the different words for sin that appear in the Bible that are not common in our vernacular. It's not words that we use in our culture today. The words sin, the words transgressions, and the word iniquity. I'm sure none of you have used those words in your vocabulary <laughs> this last week. And so there was actually three, one for each of those words. We're going to look at one about the word sin. And there's a brief little snippet where they actually give the meaning for each of those three words. So um, pay attention to that. But before we do that, we are going to read a passage responsibly from the book of Ephesians that uses some of those words. And then we'll be singing some songs that talk about the love of God and how he has overcome those problems of sin, iniquity, and transgressions. So that's what's happening now. Let's begin by reading responsively from the book of Ephesians. As for you, you were dead in your trans transgressions and sins, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you all have been saved. For it is by grace that you have been saved, and it's through faith. And this faith is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, things that you've done, so that no one can boast. All right, I guess Most that's people it. assume the Bible has a lot to say about how messed up humans are, and that's true. It's also true that the Bible's vocabulary about this topic sounds odd to modern people, using words like sin, iniquity, or transgression. And so the Bible's perspective on the human condition is often ignored or treated as ancient and backwards. This is really unfortunate, because through these words, the biblical authors are offering us a deeply profound diagnosis of human nature. Iniquity describes behavior that's crooked, while transgression refers to breaking trust. And sin, this is actually the most common of these bad words in the Bible. So let's focus on it for a few minutes. Sin translates the Hebrew word chata and the Greek word hamartia. The most basic meaning of sin isn't religious at all. Chata simply means to fail or miss the goal. Like when the Israelite tribe of Benjamin trained a small army of slingshot experts, they could sling a stone at a hare and not chata. That is, fail or miss. Or there's a biblical proverb that warns against making hasty decisions because you're likely to chata your way, miss your destination. So in the Bible, sin is a failure to fulfill a goal. But what's the goal? Well, on page one of the Bible, we learn that every human is an image of God, a sacred being who represents the creator and is worthy of respect. 
And so in this way of seeing the world, sin is a failure to love God and others by not treating them with the honor they deserve. You can see this idea in the famous code of conduct given to the Israelites, the Ten Commandments. Half of them identify ways you can fail at loving God, and the other half name ways you can fail at loving people. And the fact that both kinds of failure are combined shows that failing to honor God is deeply connected to failing to honor people. This is why in the Bible, sin against people is sin against God. Like when Joseph refuses to sleep with the wife of Potiphar, he says, how could I sin against God? In Joseph's mind, failing to honor a human made in God's image is a failure to love God. And so, sin is a failure to be truly human. But there's more. A fascinating thing about sin in the Bible is that most of the time that people are failing, they either don't know it, or even worse, they think they're succeeding. Like when Pharaoh wants to build Egypt's economy and protect national security, in his mind, this justifies enslaving the Israelites. He thinks it's good, and he's totally unaware that it's an epic fail. Or when King Saul is chasing David around the wilderness trying to kill him, he thought he was bringing a criminal to justice until he realizes he's the corrupt one. And he says, I have sinned. I am the failure. So sin is about more than just doing bad things. It describes how we easily deceive ourselves and spin illusions to redefine our bad decisions as good ones. So why are humans such bad judges between moral failure and success? Well, the first appearance of the word sin in the Bible offers an insight. There are these two brothers, Cain and Abel. Their parents had just given in to this beastly temptation to redefine good and evil by their own wisdom, and now Cain is faced with a similar choice. He's jealous and angry that God has favored his brother, and so God warns him, if you don't choose what is good, Chata is crouching at the door, it wants you. But you can rule over it. So in these stories, sin, or moral failure, is depicted as this wild, hungry animal that wants to consume humans. And we know how that story ends. The Bible is trying to tell us that failed human behavior, our tendency towards self-deception, it runs deep. It's rooted in our desires and selfish urges that compel us to act for our own benefit at the expense of others. And it leads to this chain reaction of relational breakdown. This is why in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul describes hamartia as a power or a force that rules humans. In his words, we are slaves to sin. He even says, sin lives in us, so that the things I don't want to do, that's what I do. So with the word sin, the biblical authors are offering a robust description of the human condition. It's a failure to be humans who fully love God and others. It's our inability to judge whether we're succeeding or failing. And it's that deep, selfish impulse that drives much of our behavior. This is not a pretty picture of ourselves, but if we're honest, it's realistic. This is why in the Bible, the story of Jesus is such good news. He's depicted as the creator become a truly human one who did not fail to love God and others. That is, he did not sin. And yet, he took responsibility for humanity's history of failure. He lived for others and he died for their sins. And he was raised from the dead to offer them the gift of his life that covers for their failures. Or in the words of the apostles, he committed no sin, yet he carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to our sins and live to do what is right. And that's the story behind the biblical word for sin. So we have a God who has loved us enough to do what we just heard about. And so we're going to spend some time 
celebrating that in our final set of songs. If you'd stand, uh, let me just give you a little background. So the first set we're going to do is a mashup that I put together of songs about the love of God. One is the chorus of a song from that was very popular in the 80s and 90s. And the other one is the chorus of a song that's super popular right now. So let's stand together and let's sing these songs about the love of God.
Father, we thank you for, for Jesus who loves us so, who holds us fast, who does not leave us, holds on to us and is faithful to us in the midst of all that life can throw at us. Thank you that he holds us fast and it's not incumbent upon ourselves to hold ourselves fast. That it all depends on you and your grace and your love for us. Father, we thank you for your love. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated. When it was completed in 2004, there was a building in in Taipei, Taiwan, known as Taipei 101, that became the the tallest building in the world. Isn't it? It stands 1,667 feet tall. It's since been surpassed by the Burj Khalifa and a couple other buildings, but it's still, even now, a very impressive structure. Juts out from the, the Taipei skyline, big and grand. There's just one, one small problem. As I said, this building's located in, in Taipei City on the relatively small island of Taiwan in the Pacific Ocean. And it's in a very tectonically active area. As a result, this building is frequently experiences both frequent typhoons and frequent earthquakes. There are typhoons that hit it with winds well over 100 miles per hour, and Taiwan last year experienced over 200 feelable earthquakes. In 2022 alone, there were six earthquakes that measured over a six on the Richter scale in Taiwan, which according to this graphic, puts it in the the strong category and capable of causing major damage in populated areas. During the construction of that building, Taipei 101, a 6.8 magnitude earthquake struck the area and caused two construction cranes to collapse. Additionally, in 2021, a typhoon struck Taipei and Taipei 101, the building was hit with winds reaching 145 miles per hour. And like, I'm no engineer. Math's not really my thing. I'm not really into construction. But like, strong winds and earthquakes don't seem great for something as tall as that building. Seems less than ideal. So the question then is, like, how do you make something that tall, that grand, that big, and how do you make it able to withstand forces like earthquakes and strong winds. And in the case of Taipei 101, the answer is something called a giant mass dampening system. It's this thing. It's this ball. This ball by itself weighs 660 metric tons. And it's suspended between the 87th and the 92nd floor of the building. You can kind of see it there. Towards the top of the building, it just hangs there. The ball by itself costs $4 million. And what it does, though, is it acts as a giant pendulum that counteracts the outside forces and it prevents the building from swaying too much when it's struck by earthquakes or heavy winds. During that 2021 typhoon, this ball swung more than one meter in each direction, which is the largest movement ever 
recorded on that, that dampener. It swayed quite a bit, but the building itself stood firm. The building held up in the midst of otherwise devastating circumstances. And in today's passage in the book of Philippians, Paul reminds us that it's important for each of us to have a mass dampener in our own lives, something that can help us stand firm in the midst of all the challenges and trials that life throws at us. And for Paul... The mass dampener in the life of any Christian is the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. It is only faith in Christ that allows us to stand firm in the midst of all the trials and challenges that life has to offer. For Paul and for other New Testament authors, including Jesus himself, this idea of standing firm is kind of an all-encompassing term that describes how we as Christians ought to live in the world. Way back in chapter 1, at the beginning of this letter, Philippians 1.27, Paul writes, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. For Paul, standing firm is analogous to and kind of side by side with living a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of Paul's main goals in writing this letter has been to help and to encourage the Philippians to do just that. To live a life that is worthy of the gospel by standing firm. So today, we pick up this letter that Paul's been writing in Philippians chapter 4, looking at verses 1 through 9. And in this chapter, Paul begins to bring his letter to the Philippians to a close. And Paul often ends his letters with a set of kind of rapid fire applications about how to live life in light of the truth that he discussed earlier in the book. The book of Philippians is is no exception. All throughout this letter, Paul has told the Philippians over and over that their their behavior ought to live up to and reflect their faith in Jesus. This is one example where he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. But he also says things like in Philippians 2, verse 12, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You've been saved from your sin by the grace of God given to you through faith in Christ. It's all His work, but now you are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You are to live out the implications of your salvation. Similarly, in Philippians 3.16, Paul says, Only let us live up to what we've already attained. You've already attained your salvation through faith in Christ, but now you are to live up to that salvation. The implication in all of this is that like, faith in Jesus, first and foremost, is, is what saves us. Right? Our salvation is entirely on the basis of our faith in Jesus. That He died, 
that paid the penalty for our sins. That our salvation comes only through believing in him, not by anything we can do. Not by our own works, not by our own good deeds. It's only by believing that Jesus died for us that we can be saved. That is fundamentally most important. That's our mass dampener. That's what helps us stand firm. Paul also wants the Philippians to know and understand that that faith in Jesus that saves us should also radically change how we live our lives. Our lives before we trusted Jesus and our lives after we trusted Jesus should look fundamentally different from one another. That applies both to our inward lives and our outward lives. The ways we think and the ways we feel, our inward emotions should be transformed by our faith in Jesus. And our actions, the way we treat others, the way we live in the world, our outward selves should be transformed by our faith in Jesus. Both things should be transformed. And so if Paul brings his letter to a close in this passage, he he gives us some just rapid-fire practical guidance and what it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. He tells us how to put our faith into practice, both inwardly and outwardly. And in fact, he intentionally starts the passage by, by calling our minds back, by reminding us of the very beginning of the book. When he told us to live a life worthy of the gospel, And the way he brings our minds back, the way he reminds us of that, is by once again using this metaphor of standing firm. Look at chapter 4, verse 1 with me. He says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. In this verse, we just see Paul's affection for the Philippians flowing out of him. He calls them brothers and sisters whom he longs for, who he loves. He calls them his joy and his crown. He calls them his dear friends. Like it's clear, Paul loves these people. And because he loves them, he wants what is best for them. What is best for them is for them to stand firm, to live lives worthy of the gospel. So now in the rest of this passage, he's going to tell them how to do that. He says, stand firm in this way. So everything that comes after this is, it's all about how we stand firm, how we live lives that are worthy of the gospel. In this passage, he gives us kind of five calls to action, five things to do that embody what it means to stand firm. The rest of our time this morning, I just want to kind of walk through this passage verse by verse and look at each of those calls to action, each of those pieces of practical advice. Just think about what it looks like for us to put them into practice in our own lives. As I was writing this, like usually when I write a sermon, I try to think of like one kind of overarching main idea that sums it all up. And I always have in my mind one of my professors from seminary who professor for preaching and talked about how he, he despised running commentary style of the preaching, right? Where you just kind of go verse, talk about it, go another verse, talk about it. And like, I cringe a little bit if you hear this sermon this morning because there's a little bit of that. 
Right? But the way Paul writes this particular passage, I, I don't know exactly how else you would do it. Right? Right? And so, continuing in verse 2, Paul writes this. I plead with Yodia, and I plead with Sainchi. I tried like 50 times this week to get these names right, and like, just those two women. I plead with both of them to have, be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. And so we don't know the details of the situation, but there's these two women whose names I can't pronounce who like, are in some conflict in the church, some aspect of life in the church they're fighting over. And luckily that dispute is kind of the background of this whole letter. Because Paul, over and over again in this book, has been, been urging the Philippians to have humility and unity. Right? But now he feels the need to address it specifically. And again, we don't know the issues at hand, but we can learn a few things even without knowing the issues. And namely, like we can learn how important it is to strive for unity in the life of the church. That's important to note as we think about this passage that whatever the division was between these two women, like it wasn't a gospel issue. Right? It wasn't an issue of core orthodox belief. Neither of these women was denying some central truth of Christianity. And we know that because Paul says that both of them have their names written in the book of life. Paul's confident that both of them will one day spend eternity with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. This is not a primary, central gospel issue at hand. If it was that, Paul would have no problem telling the one who was wrong that they were wrong, being very clear about that. If you notice, Paul doesn't even take a side here. He doesn't say who is right and who is wrong. He just urges them to get along. So clearly, this is some secondary or tertiary issue that these women are, are arguing over that's causing strife in the church. And so one of the things we can learn from this, even without knowing the issue, is that we need to choose our hills to die on carefully. We need to be careful about what we're going to make a big deal out of. And probably my favorite thing about being a part of this denomination, the Evangelical Free Church of America, is that our denomination is committed to an ethos of what we call majoring on the majors and minoring on the minors. Which is to say that we will care deeply and passionately and defend with all we are worth the central tenets of our faith. But the major belief of Christianity, we will die on those hills. We will die on the hill that God is the creator of the universe. We will die on the hill of the inerrancy of scripture. We will die on the hill of the sinless life of Christ and the divinity of Christ and of faith in Christ being the only way to eternal life. We will die on those hills. But there are also hills that we will not die on. We will not die on the hill of details about the end times. We will not die on the hill of worship styles or church schedules or whatever. We will not die on the hill of specific church programs. We will not die on any political hill. 
my seminary president, Dr. Al Mohler, wrote an article a few years back called A Call for Theological Triage and Christian Maturity. And in it, he referred to first, second, and third order theological issues. The first order issue being the hill is worth dying on, and second and third level issue being less and less important. And in the conclusion of that article, he writes this. The mark of true liberalism is the refusal to admit that first-order theological issues even exist. Liberals treat first-order doctrines as if they are merely third-order in importance, and doctrinal ambiguity is is the inevitable result. Fundamentalism, on the other hand, tends toward the opposite error. The misjudgment of true fundamentalism is is the belief that all disagreements concern first-order doctrines. Thus, third-order issues are raised to a first-order importance, and Christians are wrongfully and harmfully divided. And sadly, many, many churches have fallen into one of these two errors. Many churches have refused to die on any hill. And therefore, they no longer hold to anything resembling historic Christianity. On the other hand, many churches have died on molehills. Many churches have split and been harmfully divided because people in the church insisted on dying on little hills that were not in any way worth dying on. And Paul in this passage called us to avoid both errors, to strive for unity. We could spend a lot of time on this. Right? We probably spend a lot of time on each of these applications. We don't, we don't have time to go real deep in each one. So let me just end this point by saying, sometimes striving for unity looks like setting aside your desire to be right on issues that are not worth dying on. Sometimes your desire to be right is not worth the division it would cause in the church. We strive for unity. We're called to, as Paul said earlier in the book, have the humble mindset of Christ in which we consider others more valuable than ourselves. And we do that for the good of the church, for the good of the glory of God. And even when things aren't exactly as we prefer, we can still do what Paul says in verse 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. This is one of those verses where like, it seems like Paul must be exaggerating. Rejoice in the Lord always. As we read this, let me just remind you that Paul writes this from prison. He writes that facing the very real prospect of death and execution, at this point in his life, Paul has been beaten numerous times. He's been through all kinds of trials. Paul does not write these words flippantly. Paul does not write these words with no understanding of the trial people go through. He's been through them all, and he still writes these words. He writes them from a deep understanding of the trial and difficulties of life. 
And here he tells us that despite all of the trial, despite all the challenges of life, no matter what is going on, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Two things to kind of know very quickly. One, Paul, Paul commands us to rejoice, which means that on some level, like rejoicing is a choice. Right? It's not purely about the emotions that you can't control. Like We have a choice to rejoice, otherwise Paul would not command it. Right? The second thing to notice here is that the way and the reason we are to rejoice is important. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. You might be inclined to say, like, look, there is nothing in my life worth rejoicing over. Like, Pastor, you don't understand how difficult my life is, how hard things are. There's no way I could possibly rejoice. But, like, if you are in the Lord, there's always something to rejoice over. Because no matter what trials, no matter what difficulties or challenges this life throws at you, the greatest problem you ever had with your sin separating you from God. But if you have trusted in Jesus, if you are in the Lord, then that problem, that great trial, that ultimate difficulty has been dealt with forever. You have eternal life to look forward to when, when all the trials and tribulations of this life will be no more. You will spend eternity in the new heavens and the new earth where there is no more sin, there is no more pain, there is no more suffering. No matter what trial this life throws at you, this life is a vapor, it's a breath. It'll be here today and gone tomorrow. But your eternal problem has already been dealt with in Christ. No matter what you're facing now, that is always worth rejoicing over. In Romans 8, Paul writes, one of the most hopeful verses in all of scripture when he writes this he says I consider that our present suffering which there were plenty for Paul right? I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us the present sufferings of this life no matter how great they are are not worth comparing to the glory that awaits us for all eternity. Kind of like, like the easiest game of would you rather ever. Right? Like, would you rather have like, $10 million but you have to get one paper cut? Right? Or would you rather not get the paper cut but then also not get $10 million? Right? Like you would say, like, the slight tiny pain of a little paper cut is, is not worth comparing to how life-changing $10 million could be. So of course I'll take the paper cut. And the same thing is true on an even grander, greater scale here. Whatever suffering this life throws at you, it's not worth comparing to the unimaginable greatness and glory that awaits all who have trusted in Jesus. The way we can rejoice, the way we can choose to rejoice, it's by intentionally reminding ourselves of that truth. The truth of 
God's love for us in Christ, the truth that we have eternity to look forward to. That truth is the mass dampener that helps us stand firm in the midst of all kinds of potential disaster. By constantly reminding ourselves of our sinfulness and how Jesus came and lived among us and lived a sinless life and died for us so that our sins could be forgiven. By reminding ourselves that we have eternity to look forward to no matter the suffering we face now, like we can choose to rejoice. Because of that truth, because of Jesus, Paul can say, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. The next application Paul gives us is in verse 5. He says this, Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. So the application here is simply to be gentle. And in particular, that word gentleness in this passage has the connotation of, of being kind and gentle towards those who don't necessarily deserve it. Right? Of being gentle and kind towards those who are harsh and mean toward us. Paul says we are to, to be known as people who are gentle and kind towards those who mistreat you. Right? This is it's just Paul's way of rephrasing Jesus' command to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Like we're to be kind. We're to be gentle. Yes, we sometimes need to speak truth. Right? But you can do that in a way that is gentle and kind and loving. Like Paul is accused by the Corinthians of, of being too timid on certain issues. And his response is to appeal to the humility and gentleness of Christ as his example. And would the same thing be true of us? We'd be known as people who are gentle and kind, even as we speak truth. But notice, our being gentle does not mean that the people who mistreat us simply get away with it. Paul's whole rationale for being gentle is that the Lord is near. Paul is confident that that Jesus sees all the mistreatment that he endures and that Paul is confident that one day Jesus will return and when that day comes, all those who have not trusted in Jesus will be held to account for all the ways they mistreated others. Paul is confident that Jesus will handle and deal with those who mistreat him and those he loves, and therefore Paul himself can be gentle and kind. Therefore Paul can love his enemy, because he trusts in the sovereignty of God to know what is happening and to take care of it. The sovereignty of God is also essential in putting verses 6 and 7 into practice. Paul writes this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. That just feels like another one of those, like, impossible commands. First, rejoice always now, don't be anxious about 
anything. But again, it's important to notice and remember that if anyone has something to be anxious about, it's Paul. It's not a flippant statement again. This is not blind optimism. Paul writes this from prison, facing death. And yet he says, don't be anxious about anything. How can we do this? How can Paul do this? How can we do this? And note if Paul gives us an alternative course of action to take instead of being anxious. Paul does not simply say, hey, just, just shove the concern out of your mind. Just empty your thoughts. Paul is not suggesting some kind of just mindfulness practice here. He gives us something else to do instead. He says, in everything, by prayer and petition, present your request to God. So when anxiety comes, when trials present themselves, when they fight to dominate your thoughts, when you find yourself worrying and anxious, the thing to do is not to say, well, Paul says don't be anxious, so stop being anxious, brain. No, the thing to do, Paul says, is to bring those cares, bring those concerns, bring those anxieties before God. Present your request to God and ask God to help you deal with them. Ask Him to help you not be anxious about them. Spend time in prayer. Spend time in communing with the Almighty Father who loves you and who can handle everything. Feel anxiety coming. Go to God in prayer. And as you bring those requests to God, as you remember how great and loving and all-powerful God is, then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will come upon you. It will guard your heart. It will guard your mind in Christ Jesus. And again, it's Jesus who served as the rationale for this command. It's Jesus who served as the example that allows us to stand firm. Because if God loved us enough, while we are in the depths of our sin, while we were His enemies, He loved us enough to send His one and His only beloved Son to die for us. He did that. And He must, must love us enough to be with us through anything else that could cause us anxiety, that could cause us to be anxious. God sent Jesus when we were sinners and His enemies. And surely He loved us enough to help us with anything else that may cause us anxiety. So we pray, we ask God to take our anxiety, we ask God to remind us of His love for us, that the peace of God can guard our hearts, guard our minds. Our prayer is the key to the unanxious life. And again, there is so much more that we could say about prayer and about this, and this fall we will we'll dig much more deeply into that idea as we spend four weeks talking about prayer specifically as part of our next 
um, Practicing the Way series. But for now, I simply remind you and encourage you to remember that Paul means it when he says, don't be anxious about anything. Those words are in the Bible. They're not an ideal to shoot for, but never a reach. They're a goal that can be attained through prayer. Invite us to take our care, take our anxiety to God and let Him work His peace in us. If you find yourself anxious this week, you find yourself dwelling on different cares and different concerns, if you find your mind being consumed and spiraling with worry, urge you, make it a priority to bring those cares before your Father. Spend time with God in prayer. And give Him the time. Give Him stillness to work in your heart, to work in your mind. Commune with your Father. May the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, guard your heart, guard your mind in Christ Jesus. Paul gives us one more application in verse 8. He says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So the final application Paul gives us, which also helped with the previous one, is to fill our minds with good. To think about the things that are excellent and noble and pure and right and lovely. Fill our minds with things that are good. A couple of weeks ago, I, I said in a sermon that, that there's kind of gray areas in the Christian life and we should not be quick to judge fellow Christians for choosing differently than us in certain areas. And one of those areas I talked about was in the media we consume. And I stand by that. I, I maintain that that's true, that there's gray area there. But that being said, in light of verses like this, there's... There's some media content, some TV shows, some books, some movies, some video games, some whatever, that some Christians consume that like, it's hard to justify. There's some content out there that it's hard to see how it's noble or right or pure or lovely or admirable or worthy of praise. We're called here to think about things that are good and true and admirable. And we naturally think about the content we consume. We think about the things that we put into our eyes and our ears and our brains. So I just urge you to be careful about what you let into your mind. The first and most obvious application is that you should be sure to fill your mind with the Bible and Christian content. There is nothing more good and lovely and praiseworthy and admirable than Jesus. So let your mind dwell on Him. Fill your mind with 
Bible reading and prayer and good Christian content. But I think this verse also still leaves room for secular content. There's much secular content that portrays stories of redemption and forgiveness and goodness and admirable behavior. Doesn't mean we have to cut out all secular content. But there is a lot of secular content that offers none of these things. So I just urge you, like the question I think we should ask ourselves since we consume media, whether it's reading, whether it's watching, whether it's listening, the question we should ask ourselves is, does this piece of media cause me to think about that which is good and lovely and right and pure and worthy of praise? After I watch this, after I listen to this, does my brain go to places that are good and lovely and praiseworthy? Or does it go to dark and non-praiseworthy places? And again, that answer may be different for different people. Two people could watch the same thing and one person could have their mind drawn to what is good and lovely. While others can't help but dwell on wickedness and darkness in it. But the important thing is to, to honestly assess your own heart, your own mind, and think about like where does this content draw my mind? That doesn't mean just looking for one glimmer of goodness you can justify watching what you want to watch. But where did your mind actually go as you watch these things? What did this content cause me to think about? Where did it cause my mind to go after I watch it? Would we be people who use our minds to to think about what is good and lovely and admirable and, and worthy of praise? We use our mind that God has given us well for His glory. Paul wraps all this up. He summarizes all of this by saying in verse 9, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. May God of peace be with you all. So again, this is another time in this letter where Paul invites us to use him as an example of what the Christian life looks like. To follow him as he follows Christ. For Paul, right, the Christian life is all about taking the truths of the gospel, internalizing them, having them deep inside of us, and then letting them compel us to live lives in light of those truths. That manifests itself in any number of ways. One of those ways is through hearts that are dedicated to, to service. You may have noticed when you came in this morning that like, our new playground is set up. It's not ready to be played on yet, so kids don't go climbing on it. But it's up, and all that happened Friday and Saturday is a number of People were here helping set that up, and it happened because many people gave generously to, like, financially to making that happen, and time for the rummage sale to make that happen, and like, that playground is a testimony to people in this church 
living out the gospel. So before we wrap up this morning, we're just going to have a quick time lapse of that swing set going up to help us celebrate the work that God is doing through that. One example of ways that we can put the gospel and the impact on our lives into practice. And I'm thankful for people of this church body who, whether it's through the playground, that work, or other ways that they're living out their faith in their community, where we put our faith into practice. Thank you for all you do to display that you're living lives that are worthy of the gospel.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you for the life and work of Jesus. For his death on our behalf, for your promise of eternal glory through faith in Christ. Father, would we continue to be people who live lives that are worthy of the gospel? Would we be people who work out our salvation with fear and trembling? We be people who live up to what we've already attained. We be people who stand firm, who strive for unity, who rejoice always, who are not anxious but pray present our request to you to be people who love you, who think about that which is good and right and honorable and pure and worthy of praise. We be people who live out our faith. Father, I praise you for the way so many in this church already do that. Would you continue to reveal and work in us to show us more and more day by day what it looks like to be like Christ, to live out our faith. When we fail, would we be quick to confess and quick to repent? We be people who are quick to forgive those who have sinned against us. Knowing that you have forgiven us of all our sins. Father, would we go from here desiring nothing more than to display to the world the transformational work you've done in each of our hearts in saving us from our sins through the work of Christ. As we go, would your kingdom advance because we are living in this world with that desire. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go, would you go living a life worthy of the gospel and standing firm? You are dismissed.